Hello, and welcome to this Linklater's podcast on payments regulation. Every month, we talk about the latest legal developments to the payments industry. I'm joined on the line by three of our payments regulation experts, Harry Edis. Hello. Jean Price. Hello. And Paul Harris. Hello. Later on in this episode, we are going to look at how central banks and regulators are responding to stablecoins. But first, since we recorded our previous podcast, the regulators in the UK have published their business plans for the year ahead. Harry, we talked about COVID-19 in the last episode. How have recent developments affected the regulators' plans? Well, as always at this time of year, the FCA and the Payment Systems Regulator, the PSR, have published their work plans for the next year. This time, though, everything is caveated by COVID-19, and both regulators have said they will prioritise work in response to the virus. Deadlines for other policy work have either already been or are likely to be pushed back. For example, the FCA says it may take months before it is in a position to focus more fully on many of the activities set out in its plan. There has already been a considerable number of interventions taken by the government, Bank of England and the FCA to respond to the crisis. These include temporary rule changes, for example, measures for personal loans, credit cards and overdrafts to support consumers in financial difficulty, and also new regulatory guidance, for example, on mortgage payment holidays. And depending on how the situation develops over the coming weeks and months, I think firms can expect a lot more activity from the regulators on this. It is broadly a proactive wait and see approach, if there is such a thing, being proactive in matters to keep the financial systems on its feet, while seeing how things develop and taking appropriate action thereafter. A welcome approach from the regulators, one might add. Okay, thank you. So, um, Jean, aside from tackling COVID-19, which of the, um, the priorities the FDA has um, are going to be relevant to payment services? Well, for those of us who are involved in advising payments firms on payments issues, um, I'm very pleased to see that payments makes it to the top of the FCA's list of priorities for the medium term. Good news for us all. Um, the FCA has set four outcomes that it wants to achieve for consumers. The first of these is ensuring that consumers get safe and accessible payments to receive their pay or benefits, settle bills and access cash when they need it. And I think we can expect the FCA to keep returning to this theme over the next year or two. And it ties in with a couple of their cross-sector priorities that we've spoken about on other episodes, mainly Brexit and operational resilience. And obviously, pay and access to pay is a big issue in the current environment. So another major theme that comes out of the report is um, tackling financial crime, and in particular, fraud. Um, that's something which is relevant to all sectors the FCA oversees. But as we've talked about on a previous podcast, um, it's particularly relevant to the payments industry. So going back to what Harry was saying just now about the regulators' response to COVID-19, one thing that the FCA is particularly worried about is that, as we find ourselves at the moment at a time of economic downturn, the risk of misconduct could potentially go up. For example, scammers trying to um, take advantage of vulnerable customers, um, people at being at a more vulnerable stage, which will will see them take a sort of an easy chance if they spot it. Um, so the FCA has said it's going to focus on ensuring firms have effective systems and controls in, in place to reduce the risk of fraud for consumers and, and keep them safe, essentially, in difficult market conditions. So those are some of the things the FCA are going to prioritise uh, in the next year or so. Um, and Paul, um, Harry mentioned that the PSR has also published its business plan. And you and I are just talking before we started recording, um, debating whether or not 
Um, perhaps this is one of the more boring plans that the uh, PSR has put out recently. Uh, what were your thoughts on that? Uh, yes, so it, it, what, what, what's almost interesting about uh, the PSR's business plan is that uh, it's not that interesting, that it's strikingly similar to the previous year's plan. Um, and this is largely down to some of the longer, longer term projects, such as supporting the new payments architecture along with Pay UK, um, and its longer term review into card acquiring services still being ongoing, um, as well as one of its bigger projects over the course of the year, which is confirmation of the payee, which largely should have been done now, and they're looking to the future as the longer term solutions. Although in relation to COVID-19, the PSR's um, business plan was clearly written before the outbreak, and they have clarified a couple of matters, which is essentially they are focusing on ensuring that payment systems remain operational and viable during this period, particularly because with the lockdown, uh, many more people are relying on remote payment systems in order to be able to buy essentials such as, such as food. Um, linked to that is the delay of the implementation of the confirmation of payee uh, requirements because of uh, prioritization of COVID-19 responses. But they are taking forward authorized push payment scans. Um, and the debate definitely continues about the details for a fund to cover no blame victims of fraud. And this is obviously something that we've covered on a previous podcast. Um, I think Gene covered it on, on, in a previous episode. Um, one thing I did kind of want to flag though is that the PSR is actually working on a longer term strategy. And I suppose we do need to bear in mind that the PSR is still a relatively young regulator. And actually, I think in the course of this month, it, it's going to turn five. Um, and it's recently got in a new managing director at the end of last year. And so some of the longer term projects that I've just mentioned are now inching towards completion. And so bringing these factors together, it kind of makes sense now for the regulator to look further ahead um, to what its priorities will need to be longer term. And I think it's probably worth keeping an eye on what direction um, its strategy um, will move into um, as things develop further. Thank you very much. So I think COVID-19 clearly dominating the news at the moment, but um, there's some indication as always in, in the business plans about what the regulators uh, would like to focus on uh, over the course of the year, certainly once the crisis has passed. And no doubt we'll pick up on some of these things again in a future episode. Let's turn now to uh, talking about how central banks and regulators are responding to the rise of stablecoins. There's been a lot in the payments press about uh, these stablecoins in the last year. Harry, would you like to begin by explaining what a stablecoin is? Sure. Um, you'll no doubt recall the hype around Bitcoin a few years ago when there was a surge in its value through $20,000. And as a result of that, a wave of other crypto assets were developed. Many of these were promoted as being a payment token or an asset of some kind, but most did not have any inherent value. In other words, they were worth only what someone was pre prepared to pay for it. Prices were therefore volatile and could go up down as quickly as they could go up. So the vision of a stable coin was born. A stable coin is nothing more than a form of crypto asset, but one where the value was derived from and most often backed by other assets or rights. For example, a stable coin could be backed by government debt meaning that all monies used to purchase the stablecoin would be invested in that government debt, thereby underpinning the value of the stablecoin. But it goes without saying that a stablecoin is only as stable as the assets backing the coin. Going back to my example, if the government debt collapsed in value, so would the value of the stablecoin. 
that the value of the coin is only ever as good as the value of the asset. Stable coins then potentially fix one of the perceived flaws of other crypto assets. Are they going to be the next big thing in payments? Well, one always looks to the value of the stable coin and to see exactly how it is um, going to be set up. And um, clearly different stable coins offer different um, value propositions. However, the market was somewhat uh, changed last year when Facebook unveiled plans for a new digital currency. The value of Libra, as the currency is to be called, will be backed by a reserve comprising either cash or very liquid cash equivalent assets. So that's obviously a potential game changer. How did regulators react to that? Well, somewhat lukewarm is the, is the uh, honest response. Um, it's fair to say that the potential advent of Libra, um, and I would note that it is merely in gestation phase at the moment, brought a number of policy issues to bear for regulators and particularly central banks. As you will know, central banks are the oversight mechanism for money, and there are significant policy considerations around the issuance of money or money-like instruments. Up until that point, regulators had not been overly concerned that crypto assets, even stable coins, could replace money. But a stable coin that was widely enough used did have a mechanism to store its value and became a unit of account would start to act very much like money and could supplant central banks in the fiscal policy arena, both within jurisdictions and on a global scale. There have been dozens of papers since then published by bodies around the world setting out the risks of global st stable coins and the challenge they present to the existing order. Okay, so for example, I think um, the FSB published something on uh, stablecoins, didn't they? Uh, Jean, did you did you have a look at that uh, FSB report? <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, Simon. Um, so the background to this is that the Financial Stability Board was asked by the G20 to look into stable coins and see what was going on. And it's now published its recommendations. And basically, it calls on regulators to oversee global stable coin arrangements and to make sure that different regulatory requirements apply to them to protect those who are seeking to, to purchase them. So, for example, according to the FSB, um, regulators are required to ensure that stablecoin arrangements have an effective risk management framework around them, that there are effective recovery and resolution plans if something goes wrong, and all of the usual framework you would expect around something which is money-like, let's call it. So, the report also insists that stablecoins should meet the regulatory requirements in the relevant jurisdictions before they start to operate. And that's something that the Bank of England and the ECB have already said, in fact, it's just reiterating that. And they're also very keen to, um, to avoid regulatory arbitrage, so want to set a, a level playing field. Um, interestingly, in relation to, to the Libra that Harry mentioned, Facebook um, has now published an update to its original white paper on the Libra proposal in the last month. Um, and in many ways, that is, looks like it's intended to address the concerns raised by regulators and the other bodies like the FSB. So the way I see things, uh, that, that paper from the FSB shows one approach to stablecoins, which is effectively to make sure that they're falling within the regulatory net and then kept under close scrutiny. But there's another approach, which would be effectively to beat the stablecoin operators at their own game. And that's something that I know some central banks have been looking at, isn't it, Harry? Uh, well, it is, Simon, although I would note here that central bank digital currency does exist today. It's just that it, it exists in a very limited and restricted form. 
The likes of you and me have access to money in two forms. The first is cash, which is effectively central bank money. Uh, and the second is deposits from commercial banks. But the latter is not central bank money. We take the credit risk of the issuing bank. If that bank goes bust, then we, subject to certain compensation schemes, also lose our money. Those banks, though, and other key participants in the financial system do have access to, to the Bank of England reserve accounts, which are in effect central bank digital currency. But what the um, Bank of England is uh, suggesting is that things may be changing. In the last month, it published a discussion paper on what a broader based central bank digital currency could look like, meaning that the likes of you and me could access that uh, currency. We've also seen initiatives in China, Sweden and the Eurozone, which are exploring similar ideas. Thanks, Harry. I mean, I have to say this, this subject always makes my head spin a little bit because how, how would it work in practice for the Bank of England to issue currency digitally on a, on a, um, on a massive scale? Uh, would you and I, for example, have, have accounts at the central bank? Well, the discussion paper envisages a platform model at the centre of which you would have the Bank of England providing a core ledger. This ledger would record all value in the currency and record all payments. But the only people who could access that core ledger are so-called payment interface providers, which would be the intermediaries between the bank and end users, likely today's banks. The likes of you and I would, in effect, hold our central bank digital currency through the payment interface providers. But the crucial difference is that we would not face their credit risk. In addition, those providers would could also then provide banking type services to the likes of you and me. Okay, so I like the sound of that. So I'm not taking credit risk on, on my bank, um, but also getting those, those value-added uh, banking services. So um, when, when, do I, when can I sign up? Well, not so fast, Simon. There are still some significant policy concerns with this, which are pointed out by the Bank of England in its discussion paper. Make central bank digital currency too popular, and banks could effectively be disintermediated altogether. For example, people might decide to shift all of their deposits into central bank digital currency, thereby starving banks of liquidity and hobbling lending into the market. So there's still lots to think about. The Bank of England discussion paper is open for comments until the 12th of June, and the FSB has invited comments on its report by the 15th of July. Uh, so still a bit of a movable feast. Great. Thank you, Harry. And uh, I should say, if you'd like to hear more on this subject, do please check out our previous episodes on innovative payment systems which you can find on our website. And before we go, we have time for our favorite feature of the podcast, What You Might Have Missed. Every month, one of us has just 30 seconds to explain what we need to know about something that may have otherwise passed us by. We've just played an online game of rock, paper, scissors, which Paul lost by choosing rock. And so over to you, Paul, for What You Might Have Missed, the EU cross-border payment regulation. Thanks very much, Simon. Yes, so the original cross-border payments regulation aimed to ensure that cross-border payments in the Eurozone were not more expensive than domestic Euro payments. The regulation was actually updated last year to extend this to non-Eurozone countries in the EU, so that the cost of making Euro payments are now the same as payments made in domestic currency. It also updated the requirements around currency conversion charges to make them more transparent. Since April the 19th, disclosures around conversion charges must be made for card transactions and credit transfers, with some more requirements taking effect next year. But in light of COVID-19, the European Commission has let regulators enforce the latest rules in a, quote, flexible manner, but on the basis that in these current times, maintaining the operation and stability of payment systems is crucial, and implementation of these new requirements shouldn't undermine them. 
Thank you very much, Paul. And do get in touch with us if you have any questions about the cross-border payments regulation or anything else we have discussed in today's episode. You can tweet at linklaterstech or email fintech.podcast at linklaters.com. Until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye. 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 Goodbye.